Hello, everyone. This is Robert Gowan. You're listening to Mentors for Military podcast. And this evening, I'm joined by Scott Kinder, Rudy Lindsay, uh, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. And we have a very special guest with us this evening, which is uh, Eric Lochner. And Eric is a current active duty Special Forces officer. Actually, is going to be one of our first. We had a chance to talk to uh, James Wyrick a few weeks back from the Marine Corps that got out as a JAG officer. But this was a uh, first opportunity to also talk to a field grade officer about current transition, whereas Wyrick had already gotten out. So welcome to the show, Eric, with us. Appreciate you coming and joining us. Thanks. I appreciate the invite. Really like to hear a little bit about your military background. Of course, I mentioned that you were a current uh, active duty Special Forces soldier, but what was the reason why you decided to come in, and what, what's a little bit about your background? How long have you been in the Army? Uh, active duty, I'm over uh, just over 20 years. Uh, prior to that, though, while I was in school, I uh, joined the uh, Army National Guard, where I was an 11 Bravo for four years, and really, they... Uh, the, the incentive there was, uh, you know, paying for school. I was paying my own way. I was in school as an independent student. So in total, I have over 24 years um, being 11 Bravo, 11 Alpha, and then, of course, 18 Alpha. Wow. Uh, Special Forces. So did you come in as enlisted or did you come in as the officer route? Well, National Guard, I was enlisted. And then, you know, once I finished school, uh, you know, took my commission and immediately came in as an 11 Alpha. Now, to me, there's a special place for guys who are former enlisted that became officers. And I think probably for most of us on this panel, it's kind of the same way. Because, I mean, you know, you kind of pay your dues. You get the opportunity to lead soldiers from a different perspective. How did that change kind of fit with you? How did you see the difference between being enlisted and then going to the officer route? Or did you see a change? Uh, well, yeah, for me, I absolutely appreciate it more, even though, uh, I guess the Marine Corps would call that a Mustang, but I always, you know, if somebody asked if I was prior service, I wouldn't tell them I was because I absolutely saw the difference between, a, you know, an enlisted soldier in national guard and the one that's on active duty and actually done it full time. So, but yeah, I mean, I, it definitely made me appreciate being an officer and then taking care of my soldiers, you know, have haven't been down there and done the work, you know more hands-on if you will i hate saying that being infantry and sf because we're definitely hands-on too but but uh yeah i think it makes a difference you know absolutely so what was the what was your story behind wanting to come in everybody has a story always as to why they join of course for me it was wanting to get out of the small town area that i was in and see the rest of the country and my former uh, my father was retired uh, navy i had grown up as a military brat and everything so uh, curious as to what was your story as to why you came into the Army in the first place? Uh, well, no, it was, yeah, Army, National Guard and then Army. Um, you know, originally, I'll be honest, I wanted to, uh, you know, fly. Uh, right out of high school, I actually, you know, couldn't afford school, so I worked for a few years. And, again, that's how I ended up being an independent student, going to school and qualifying for some of the financial programs. Not enough, of course. That's why I enlisted. And then, you know, after doing the 11 Bravo gig for a while, I actually liked it. So instead of, you know, pursuing a, you know, a career, wanting to be a Marine aviator, I guess I'd just come out with it. Uh, I chose, you know, I wanted to go infantry and, of course, Special Forces. Most of that was mentors while I was in school. I went to the Citadel, so many of the cadre I dealt with were either infantry, no kidding, Special Forces, um, Rennebaum was out of 10th group. Um, I don't know if Mike might know that name. Runge was a former Ranger Regiment, did some time over in CAG, so, you know, and then several of the NCOs that were there at the Citadel, 
uh, working that I worked with or were mentoring me as a student were, you know, special ops guys. So it was, you know, well, after being around them and, and their, uh, just a little bit of influence there. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, yeah. Talk about a recruiting tool, you know, it worked because yeah. I, you know, I want it all in, you know. So, so that was my, you know, motivation that motivated me to go and, you know, be all that I can be. That was the old <laughs> slogan. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good slogan, actually. I don't know why the Army got rid of that. But so when you when you came in, what were you doing? Were you just in school? Is it was kind of the progression, or what was the uh, the job that you kind of had before you came on active duty? Uh, well, active duty. I, I was active duty right out of school. So, but uh, the job right out of high school, I worked in a textile plant, um, third shift, no less. And, yeah. Uh, you know, once I had enough money and maybe a uh, you know, wanting to do better, of course. Um, you know, I found my way back into school. Part of the reason for the Citadel was I knew I wanted to serve, but the other part was I knew I'd be locked down and couldn't be encouraged to mess my grades up or get in more trouble than I was already, you know, capable of getting into. So, <laughs> what kind so, of drove you to go special forces? Was it the guys that influenced you there at the Citadel, or was it something else? Guys at the Citadel. Yeah. Uh, my first assignment, active duty, was 82nd Airborne Division, uh, First Brigade, 3004, right down the road from Third Group, Seventh Group. Uh, most of the times, uh, we stayed out training as much as we could, and it seemed like all every time we were out, especially when I was a scout platoon leader, we did a lot on our own. We were always running into guys from the ODAs. So between the influence from school all the way through guys I was meeting while I was at Fort Bragg, it was an easy decision. You know, and I, and I like the mission, too. You know, working with indige, uh, unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense. I mean, talk about a challenge. You know, you're out there on your own, building a force, you know, on your own. So, yeah, I like the mission, so I went for it. Did you find it a different challenge coming from the officer route than what typically the uh, enlisted route? Or did you find that challenge somewhat the same? or? Um, I mean, you know, uh, for the officer and special forces, you know, mission planning, you know, the analyzing. Yeah, it was it was there's a lot more responsibility. Uh, I think Rudy and the rest of the guys would tell you that, too. You know, for a special forces captain, you know, expected to be able to build and function with the battalion or greater size element of an indage. Definitely not the same challenge an infantry captain based when he's, you know, more in a, a controlled environment, I guess you could say. Yeah. When did you go through uh, the uh, Special Forces Assessment Selection? When did you go through that? Uh, 2001. Okay. I think uh, April 2001. I, I'd actually signed up in uh, 98. I got deferred like three or four times. Uh, the battalion I was in, um, believe it or not, the battalion commander I had then was a Special Forces, former Special Forces officer back before it became a branch and continuously was trying to talk me out of it. And then we uh, ended up with orders to Kosovo, so that delayed it. So I was delayed from 98 until, you know, 2001. What was his his reasoning for wanting to talk you out of it? Basically, he wanted me to stay uh, in the infantry, you know, Ah, kind of an empire building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was uh, the battalion commander. I think General McNeil was running the 82nd then. They were real close when McNeil had a battalion. Uh, He was one of his company commanders. So, you know, it was more that empire building he was a former seventh group guy he loved it you know uh bragged about it but uh, i think it was more so you know trying to keep guys he wanted inside yeah. of the infantry you know mike were you at the schoolhouse then no i don't think i okay. was at the schoolhouse when it came through okay I, I couldn't remember if you said you were around there at the 2001 period or not i i was but i don't remember coming through i was 
kind of hit and miss. That's, a good that's about thing. the time I. Sh- that's about the time I showed up. <laughs> That's a good thing if you don't remember somebody. Yeah, Dave Robeson, <laughs> Sergeant Major Dave uh, Robeson, Robeson, he remembers me. So now he was there. He was there when I worked at it, uh, at SUT. But I, again, I, as I was coming in, he was already there. And then he left while, before I had left. So we, it might have been a transition time. Yeah, but, he was. Uh, but Rudy's think, right. I mean, there are a handful of guys I remember. Uh, there's one or two good ones. And the rest were not worth remembering. <laughs> Yeah, that's unfortunate. I ended up working out at SUT and Robin Sage a little bit, and I, I would always tell my captains that I run into afterwards, it's probably a good thing I don't remember you. Because yeah. usually when I was out walking lanes, uh, especially when I was the uh, commander at SUT, two years out there, anytime I was walking a lane, it was because we had a problem child out there. So, And that's whenever the commander would walk with me, it was kind of the same thing. We were looking to you usually were, you were remove somebody. <laughs> usually remove somebody from the class well before we get to the board. Yeah. So you're looking at retirement soon. Have you have you thought about the actual date or time frame, or are you still just kind of looking at kind of throwing it out there soon, or what are you thinking? What's on your mind? Absolutely, but it's definitely floating, if you will. Can yeah, I use that term? sure. But, uh, so originally it was going to be last month, but the deployments prevented that. Once I changed jobs, of course, now I've changed over. I'm uh, at the inspector general office at USASOC. It's the only way I could stay home. So now it was it was going to be next March, you know, kind of doing the March. That's my month, I guess you could say, for the uh, final date. Um, and now there's other opportunities that have come up and they've more or less, I've been told if I maybe stick around a little longer, that, you know, I can just transition from uniform to civilian clothing in that office. So, oh, wow. so, so no, I have not dropped paperwork. I'm still the fan, my wife and I were still looking at next March, but you know, the opportunity is if I stay a little bit longer, six months to another 12 months, possibly just stay where I'm at and become a GS employee. So is that your goal? Is that what you want to do? I mean, yep. Kind of lifelong retire and, and go right back into government service? My, pause. You know, pause. right, yeah, pause, yeah. So <laughs> I guess goal is, honestly, up front is being able to provide for my family. And um, as Rudy kind of started before uh, we started this, is continue my hobbies, which is, you know, the bass fishing, which is no cheap hobby at all. I gave up hunting because (laughs) the fishing was so expensive. Um, And now my son, who's come of age enough that he wants to fish and hunt, it's, you know, become even more expensive. So, so yeah, right now it was more two things. One, financially be able to continue living the lifestyle we have. And then two is actually to stay here and Fayetteville because I have a daughter that'll be a senior next year and then my son of course who's 13 you know will be 14 here soon it's keeping them in place um I was a military brat uh for a long time for most of my time growing up and I just personally the moving around every three to four years made me lose interest in school so you know we went with the if I could keep my kids in the same school during my career uh, that's what I wanted to do. And there's only been a couple of times I've had to go away. And that was, you know, for the, you know, advanced course, um, uh, what, you know, CGSC, which what is now ILE and they stayed here. I went as uh, a geo bachelor and it's paid off in my opinion. Both kids are doing great in school as far as grades. Uh, you know, my daughter big into the beauty pageants here. She just gave up junior Miss North Carolina title, uh, number She's in the top 10 of her class out of, I think, 360 people. So, you know, was a previous class president and for some reason couldn't run again the next year, but I think she's planning on running. But so, you know, really 
in there into the community. Got grew up with the same set of kids. I've got a neighbor here that they've known since birth, pretty much. So. I just think it makes a difference, the stability. So. It does, yeah. Having that nucleus, especially with your kids, having that nucleus of friends that's kind of gone through that you know you can trust as well as they've kind of grown up with and you know their parents and all that, it's it's a huge factor. It's one of the, the decisions that caused me to get out as well and not continue on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then having neighbors, you know, during deployments that I know if something happens, sure. there's a guy that's been here. We moved into this particular neighborhood in 2002. So there's a guy right down the road that I've known for the last 14 years who's never been military. Huge factor. He, yeah, he can get anything done for him. And actually, his kids are the same age as my kids, so they've grown up together since birth, you know, as far as my youngest. So it absolutely makes a difference. So yeah, right now, community roots make a big difference. You know, and I, 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 you guys all know I retired and stayed in the same place that I've been since I came out of the Q course for the most part. But um, somebody told me as I was getting ready to transition a year or so out that, once you once you find the place you want to live, then everything else becomes a lot easier because you narrow your job search, you narrow your search for for how you can you know inject yourself into the into the private sectors. It sounds like you've already done some of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can't I can't tell you I'm absolutely 100 percent in love with Fayetteville. Oh, but yeah, well, that was going to be my next question because I don't yeah, meet yeah. too many people that want to stay in Fayetteville. No, and I still listed in my you know whatever you know I hit the. Uh, Maps back home, I listed as Vietnam still. So, <laughs> um, we have one of those here locally, actually near Atlanta. So, when you start thinking about your your passion or your purpose, I talk a lot about that in the book, mainly because I I had a executive coach sit down with me and said, Robert, you really need to figure out what your purpose or your passion is. When you think about that, Eric, what do you kind of think of your purpose or passion, or have you had time to really think about what that is yet? You know, and just want to share this. I did read it. I have it. I bought the book. And that's the first time I've actually, in your book, you talk about what you just asked me. And so, you know, the passion, I can't say I've thought a lot about it. I guess it would be the, you know, outdoors, fishing, right, Rudy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, serving with, uh, you know, the nonprofit organization. I've been so busy, never done it before, but recently went with uh, the group of guys, friends that Rudy and I share, and uh, for uh, special ops survivors, you know. I try to look at things like that that I like, my passion, you know, that relate to the outdoors, but not quite sure I could include that in my job search. There is a Bass Pro Shop up in Cary that I thought about looking into something for management, but my wife told me absolutely not, so. <laughs> well, the beauty of a purpose or a passion is that as long as you have that within your life, you create the balance, whether it's actually within your job. And of course, if you're able to apply it to your job and your current work, then that's great. But a lot of people never find their purpose or passion or the things that really drives them to want to get up out of the, the bed and or find that work-life balance. If you don't do that, then I think that's where you struggle. So the fact that you already know what that is and you've kind of found what your passion is, whether it's a hobby it or it's within your work, I think it's still part of the game. It's still part of that. If you can apply both of them, then, you know, that's that's the secret sauce right there. You know, you know I, I, I would I, I guess the one other thing that's a passion that, you know, you and you saying makes me want to get up out of bed is I, I really enjoyed my time as an instructor when I was at Robin Sage and, you know, SUT, small unit tactics. Right. That. But, you know, and some of these guys would say that worked out there. Getting a job out there uh, is there's a line, no doubt. And, uh, you know, I still do. Uh, jumps, everyone operations out there with those guys just because I, I still know a lot of those guys and I can easily just show up and jump. 
so I stay in touch with them and you know I constantly ask them. and you I can see the turnover guys that were in uniform when I was out there in uniform there's a few of them now have made a transition they're retired and they're there in civilian clothes so you know if somehow I could do not just in you know teaching or instructing but I mean I loved the small unit tactics the Robin Sage but you know that passion again you're really very small uh, opportunity there you know and like I said there's a line of great dudes much better than me already in line hoping to get a job out there so it's Might interesting be. that you say that because it's one of the hardest places to get guys to accept an assignment to and uh, I was a branch manager for a while almost all of my branch visits that I did at Fort Bragg I'd spent time out with the guys at SFAS uh, Robin Sage and SUT and uh, you know it's a hard job uh, it's it's it's, it's a lot of hours. It's night out in the field. It's stuff that you don't really – guys don't think about going to SWIC to, to, to do. And a lot of them, you know, kind of take that time to get their college degree, at least on the enlisted side. Uh, so, uh, you know, a platform position at the senior leader course or somewhere back on Fort Bragg is, is usually a little bit easier of an assignment. But, man, I used to tell guys all the time it's one of the, it's one of the toughest jobs at SWIC, but it's also one of the best. I mean, nowhere in the Special Warfare Center are you really molding Green Berets – like you're doing out of Camp McCall. And I, I just want to agree with you because I think um, several of my buddies who we talked about what a tough job it was out there, but once we got there, we loved it, are now, you know, the th- third group guys that have retired trying to get into the into the pipeline to start going back out to Camp McCall and either be a point sitter for something or or work with the guys yeah. in SUT. What a great assignment. Yeah, absolutely. Any you know, point sitter, G chief, you know, a lot of guys that love that, and especially, you know, I worked with a guy that was a retired seventh group guy that was the G chief at Robin Sage, and I, I envied him, which they were getting paid pretty pretty nice uh, chunk of change back then, too. But, you know, and then the contracts turn over. So, you, you know, for a while there, there was more opportunity because they had the contracting to pay lane walkers and SUT points. Well, I still do the point sitters, but, you know, there were many other opportunities with the contracting, but not so sure I'm open to taking a contract job for some for an assignment like that because you know they they're uh, unstable I guess that's the easiest oh way yeah to that's a good, good way of putting it for sure it usually depends upon the uh, the budget what's cool is that you know you've got someone like Mike that took the background that he has and is going to apply that to education and teaching high school then you have someone like Scott that wrote the book ground truth and other books that he's working on presently that he's applied the SF skills to his training within the kinder group that he's created so I think there's always that possibility just applying your skills and knowledge, whether it's being a mentor, a coach, a trainer. Um, you've got a lot of that, it sounds like, that you want to continue doing, Eric. Yeah, that, uh, absolutely. Um, there was another uh, opportunity, but again, you know, it didn't fit into the location piece. Was So I had the opportunity to go to the Air Force ILE, which is in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. Love my time there. Love the schoolhouse. Again, it's an Air Force environment, so... Long story short, I told Branch I need a break from the testosterone, and so, and I was a geo vet, and I've I've been honest with my Air Force brothers and sisters that I met there. I think you know, how did you end up here? I told them the exact same thing. I needed a break from the testosterone, so here I am. So, I got to uh, pile on again because I'm I'm a graduate of the senior enlisted course for the Air Force at Montgomery, Alabama, at Gunner Airfield. So I, you know, I, I think that's probably the one thing that set me apart from. Well, there's 26 of us actually that were selected to go. So from everybody else that I know uh, who got promoted with me, there was only two 10th group guys that went to that course. And um, I, I think it was a world of difference than, um, than what we would have gotten in the Sergeant Major Academy. And I'm sure the, the experience that you had was similar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, different environment. You know, they have a different way of looking at things, different perspective. 
Uh, and then, oh, by the way, I, I got a master's out of it. Whereas if I'd have gone to the army ILE, you do not get a master's unless you do it on your own time. So oh, wow. that was a little bit of incentive too. Yeah. We're the only service that's like why the that. Different, why the difference? Yeah. Cause I actually thought that when you went through a command staff that you actually got a degree out of, maybe they were just taking a different electives or something along with it or two different opportunities there. Uh, you know, you have the standard course, the, the POI for CGSC or ILE. If you want your master's, you either have to go to uh, one of the local universities. I think many of them go to Kansas, Kansas State, or gotcha. uh, I think that's it. The other opportunity is if you get selected to go to stay another year and follow on with the SAMS uh, course, uh, and then you get a master's out of that. But if you go through the regular, just ILE, POI at uh, Leavenworth, you do not get a master's out of that. And for the listeners, SAMS is the uh, School of Advanced Military Studies, right? Correct. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I've got a a curious question for you then when you talk about going back to SFAS and Q and all that. So what do you feel about the current situation with females being allowed to go through those courses? Uh, We we recently had on two-time best-selling author. uh, You're You're breaking up. Can you hear me? Yeah. You still there? Yeah, I'm just kidding. Here we go. Um, hey, you can't edit that part out, Robert. That has to stay in. <laughs> so we won't go down that path. No, we can. No problem. I, I, seriously, I've, I've been asked that question before, and I've got an honest an- answer for you. So go ahead. Sorry, I, you know, I had to throw in a little humor there. No, go ahead, Kat. I think you were actually going to bring it up. I think you were going to tell me to bring it up. <laughs> no. Um, I, had, I had another point where I was going to turn this conversation, but I guess since... You gentlemen are so interested in ladies going through the course in depth, and then that's where you want to go back to. We would love to get your opinion on how you feel about women possibly becoming uh, on one of your teams. Okay. Well, up front, I think the chances of it working on an ODA are very, very slim because of the environment and culture. As far as the training and selection, I have no problem with anybody trying out. My problem is is the senior leadership, which I've witnessed before, becoming so politically involved or maybe selfish, you know, their own career gain, that they change the standards and allow women through that may not have met met the standards. And I can say that because I I saw, I was there during a period where we were being told to fill the fourth battalions. And so there were senior leaders making decisions to allow people to get through that yeah, based on did not make yep. did absolutely that did not meet the standard, and it did. Uh, That's unfortunate, yeah. but it happens a lot. It happens all across everywhere. The same things happened since Vietnam. To- if you if you go back to the to the Vietnam era, and I, and I was there in the in early two thousands when we were we were expanding last- at least right. SUT. Um, what we did was we expanded SUT from about one hundred and fifty students to three hundred and fifty at the input. You know, the, the reason was to increase the production model on the backside to, to get more Green Berets produced out of the Q course. Well, how do you do that? Well, we couldn't we couldn't meet our input with the current level of guys meeting the standard. So the only way they could do it is to, you know, kind of open open the aperture and lower the standard for guys to get in. So they allow guys to get into SFAS. A lot of them selected out of SFAS to meet the production model. And then when we started failing them, we had one class uh, right after 9-11 that I think we failed about 60-some percent out of SUT. And, you know, Eric, having worked there, I'm sure you understand 
what kind of red flags that would have thrown up. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they looked right at the cadre. So, you know, you guys obviously are, are you're the greatest teachers in the world. You can teach anybody to do anything. You can't teach an American who speaks your language to these very simple tasks. And, you know, it's a lot more than that. It was about just what you said. It was leadership involved in a production model rather than maintaining standards of something that's been very hard for a long time. And their justification was, well, we didn't have the standard during the Vietnam War. And Do Mike, we need I think, the standard? I'd be willing to argue, brother, that, you know, probably nine times, and I never taught out there, so I don't know. I was over in an advanced skills company. But I would be willing to bet, because this is based on my experience over in advanced skills, nine out of ten of those people that you guys ended up dropping or recommending for drop was because of a, a – character trait flaw not the fact that they couldn't perform small unit tactics it was, it was probably related to a character trait somewhere yeah and you, you don't have a carp launch just to throw those guys out you've got to build a solid packet and you got to get rid of them most of the time i say most of the time at different times while i worked there depending on the climate uh, a lot of guys were offered recycles uh well, some, go ahead Kat. do you think through sfas though um do they do the period vows don't they do you think a lot of a lot yeah. of times they get weeded out because personality does shine when you're hurting the most? So I think I think there's a misconception that perivals carry a lot more weight than they really do. Yeah. Um, that's just one snapshot of what the individual looks like in his training or her training. Um, you know, yeah, when they, they, they call this call this the whole man concept as they're going through yeah. SFAS and, and we do it all the way through the course really. Uh, so you could be weak in one area and then you know they'll, they'll give you a little bit and again. It goes back to what what's the pressure on the commanders and the cadre to push through each phase to fill the next phase to get the production model met for and when I was at branch it was seven hundred and fifty green berets a year. And um we never met it. We never met it. We were short by, you know, ten or twenty those those three years that I was at branch, but um, that's a lot. That's a lot of green braids to make when you're that's saying a lot of dudes, that. You know, man. That's a lot yeah. when you say that, you know, they can't be mass produced. Yeah, um, and I'll you know, the thing I bring up too, uh well I'll bring up two things. One the increase in number, like Mike brought up, absolutely. But and I brought this up because the two years I was at, at SUT, pretty much my schedule was I would usually start a Monday, be out there at Camp McCall, and I never left Camp McCall till about Sunday morning. So it was it was just like being deployed six nights a week. I did not come home at all because of the amount of focus and attention we were getting out there. One argument I brought up is this: we were adding the fourth battalion, so the throughput. I think the number was. Uh, 1,200 they wanted, 3,500 students coming into the pipeline. The one thing they forgot to increase was the number of instructors and resources we had out there. Yeah. So we were asked to just meet those numbers with no increase in cadre, no increase of resources, you know. So that was uh, one of the so commands. That, yeah. Go ahead. That goes back to one of the points that Mike made about, you know, the work involved with creating. I never worked in McCall either, for the record. But, you know, so, so two points. One, you have to have a cadre like Mike, who is willing and able to put the work and the time in to make that packet strong enough to drop, you know, the, the guys through character traits or whatever that, that you don't want coming to the teams. And, and honestly, right, as you overwork and under-resource your cadre, that's going to happen less and less. It's going to be some some scaled system. And two, to, to Kat's point and, and to second what Mike said about peer evals, you know, as an 18 x-ray going through a phase like small unit tactics or, or anything else, I would have a conversation at the start of every phase, the middle of every phase, and at the end of every phase because, you know, I was an E3. I knew nothing about the military at all, you know, minus infantry basic training and airborne school. Um, and all of a sudden, I would get peered dead last upon just showing up to a phase, and the cadre would send me over and go, well, you're not peering very well. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know anything to be peered on. But at the end of every phase, I was peered in the top one and two guys on the team just because – and I would tell the cadre – 
I'm just going to work my butt off the whole time I'm here and try and be a sponge and try and learn as much as I can. But, you know, I had nothing to offer the Rangerback guys or the infantry guys or whoever else is a E311 Bravo coming through Smyna Tactics or Robin Sage or whatever other than the skills that I've already been taught. So I, I love peer evals if you have honest feedback, but I also know that you got to put them in the right place because, like Mike said, it only is a snapshot. It's not that whole soldier concept thing. Well, I, I think back to Kat's question, we'll see exactly the same thing as women start coming through all these courses, right? I, we were we had a lot of pressure to pass some of these 18 x-rays. The program will not work if we don't get some of them through, right? I mean, and, and now we've got a lot of really successful 18 x-rays that are that are in a regiment. So there's going to be- bags like me made it through, so you know- There's going to be pressure from leadership <laughs> to, to, to get some of these women through as well. And some of them are going to be qualified, some of them are going to meet the standard, and some of them probably won't. But I, I've said that about- Every class that I worked, at least at, at, at phase one when I was out there, um, you know, they're, they're good guys are always going to be good guys. So it doesn't matter in the E7 or the Ranger Battalion or an 18 X-ray. If you're a good dude and you work your butt off, like you said, Scott, you're going to be successful and you're going to go out and you're going to be good on a team. We'll see the same thing coming through with women. And, and there are going to be some who meet the standard. And I think that's, that's going to be fine. The bigger question goes back to what uh, Eric said, and that's the culture of guys on a team. How are they going to fit in? with guys on a team. And I, I think that's something that nobody has really, really looked at. There's, there's going to be some, some hiccups there. And it's, well, I think like it's Rudy good. said, he had the one, uh, Amy, I believe he yep. said was on your team. And she, like, yep. she was one of the guys, you know, and Stuck you kind of built on one each and, other. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, like Same how many women are qualified do that? Well, she was Eric. an anomaly, you know, she was an anomaly and, and there were, and to be honest with you, I was the two I see on the detachment. Actually, I was the commander for a year. And, and I was, we actually made the decision to bring Amy on board. And now keep in mind that it was a specialty team. You know, our, our mission was a little bit different and where we had the requirement for Amy. But, uh, you know, I, I went overboard initially because that was my fear. Well, you know, half my team were single dudes and you know, young, young type A dudes are. That, that was my biggest concern, you know, right off the bat with Amy coming on board. But what I found out, probably the first week in our first deployment, it was not going to be like that. I had I had zero issues, zero concerns. I had more pressure being put on me from higher, from the command than than I did internally. I mean, it was we were, we were firing on all cylinders. Rudy, I, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying because you're saying a, a specialty hand selected woman, you know, that has the skills on a specialty team with the right command mindset, right? So 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 that academically and emotionally makes sense to me because you can hand select and I said the same thing on Gail's podcast, right? But then I put on my, you know, former DOD program manager hat when I was at a regimental level looking down at, you know, several subordinate battalions, etc. And I try and think of that holistic integration of a similar type of, of process in, in person. And I, it just it doesn't work to me because you know yep. hand selected uniquely in specialty environments and specialty teams etc cetera, etc cetera, that works i can understand that all day long um and they can meet the standards but i just don't see a holistic integration as to eric and rudy's points there's gonna be some challenges there there's no doubt yeah but you know like you know i asked why why are we doing this are we i mean are we doing it because the teams are short and we need bodies i have no doubt there's women that can meet the standards but i, I have a question we, for you um like like you said with the whole political thing, since you're in a position to where you can look past that, and one thing that I've always made a point, because I completely agree with you, is if you can put all politics aside or have somebody in an authoritative position who can say yay or nay that these women are going to be passed for political reasons. 
So I, I don't know what confused. Well, I mean, what are you what are you asking me? So do you, I think it can be put yeah. aside? Absolutely yeah. not. Okay. Uh, there's always going to be that pressure, even if it comes from the politicians down to the next general officer on down to the junior general officer who's in charge of SWIC. It's it's coming. You know, it's going to be there. Um, that's my opinion of what happened in Ranger School. No offense to the the young ladies that made it through, but I'm skeptical. And then you know, just what with Mike was saying, you know. I'm not talking, I understand with wartime, we have to make changes. We have to, you know, we have to fill the forts. We can't just, well, I'm a little biased. I say we can still hold the standard because if you don't, it, it reflects downrange. But we're talking, I'm talking gross uh, manipulation of standards. So when you have kids that can't find one point in selection, my argument would be what makes you think they're going to find an ambush site in SUT? When you have kids that can't score 180 on the PT test in selection, what makes you think they're going to be able to carry that rucksack and find a team. For extraction exactly um, this the course is set up the way it is for a reason and they weren't just low inch lowering standards from 70 percent to a 68 percent it was 70 percent to in some cases 30 percent 20 percent i saw one with i mean the guy failed everything but we needed numbers solely based on him being a captain and we were short captains uh, which I'm going to tell you, that's a whole other story, which caused problems for the cadre out there when we were making exceptions for officers more so than the NCOs. So what, uh, I mean, what is the conversation like when you're being told, hey, these people will pass? I mean, are you going to lose your job? Or could you say, hey, F off? Like, what could you possibly do to retract that type of behavior? Because like you said, ultimately, it's going to be a problem downrange. It's a, it's a long, we could be here all night talking about it. Yeah. And, and I'll share one thing. So ultimately, I had a choice. I can either save my chance for battalion command or I can sacrifice it and follow my sword for this. So long story short, I got a calm on my third OER because I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't make the decision easier for hire. I gave him my honest opinion. I reminded him, hey, this is my cadre and my uh, recommendation to you. You do what you want with it. So and there's I'll, a fine line. And I'll give you I'll give you another example, Cap, from when I worked out there. We had a we had a company commander, an F company, that was at the time we had SUT and Robin Sage in under one company. And, and he basically said, you know, your instructors, I was a I was a senior instructor of SUT. He said, Your instructors are out there to train them and to write their evaluations. It's my job to determine whether or not they go forward. So overnight we delivered about three hundred packets. Those were the guys that hadn't quit to to the office across the street and said, Here you go. We're making no recommendations. Um, you figure out who stays or goes. And ultimately, there's no way a guy can go through 300 packets that thick of all the grades we, we did on them. And, of course, back in the team room, we already had the guys that should never return, guys that should be offered to recycle and such. And he came back in and said, hey, I can't do this. What do you guys suggest? And we gave him a list, and the list was too big. And at the end of the day, they came back, and they, they offered 10 guys recycles, 10 guys never to return, and they passed everybody else in the course against all of the instructor's recommendations that were in those packets. That's that's the way business is done out there. It's a, it's a production model. You've you know you've you've got a you've got to make mission and um Kick and the that can down the curb, right? Somebody else's problem. Yeah. That well, usually the team sergeant was the one. That's what I got. I said, "Hey, we passed this kid who who deals with it later." And the answer I got two answers. One was that team sergeant can train them, which my my response was, "You mean the team sergeant downrange with ten other dudes he has to take care of?" Good enough. Anyways. Yeah. So what is you guys have to get creative. 
Robert, you just hit another one of my passions is take care of the regiment. We could be here all night. I'm no doubt. Like- I mean, I can sense it, and I can sense it with all these guys. As a matter of fact, uh, during last week's show, unfortunately, with Gal, we had a hiccup with our delay system through our taping so we didn't get a chance to really show this aspect of it so you can see these guys are very passionate about it as well including cat it's a very passionate subject that i think all of us have but getting back to you on your separation that's coming up as well what do you see as some of the greatest challenges that you have coming up making those decisions wow uh well i'm already looking at the financial piece which you know you're what I saw in your book reinforced everything I was concerned about, you know, trying to have at least six months set aside because it could take that long. Even uh, a buddy of mine was stepping out of the the job, just changing uniform, coming right back as a GS, and it still took six months to get through that whole hiring process. So so financially, I think we have a plan and we should be on track. Um, I think the next part would be more mentally, you know, from going from the environment I'm in especially in the private sector, I would say, you know, uh, the way I'm used to talking to include, you know, profanity every now and then is totally unacceptable. You know, that that's something I've constantly, even something as simple as what do I put on in the morning? I've had it pretty good for the last 24 years. It's pretty easy. In the summertime, I have to change that uniform once a week because I get sweaty. In the wintertime, I can usually <laughs> let it last two to three weeks because I don't sweat as much. You know, you go into the private sector, and we're talking, even as a GS, you have to pick out your wardrobe. Oh, yeah. Well, as a former GS, I'll tell you, life's not always greener on that side of the house. There's a lot of, oh, man, painful. A lot of shenanigans. I have a question. Since you kind of, I guess it's very comforting to know that you could possibly slide into a GS position. And with a lot of the guys that I'm sure you have seen that have gotten out that haven't had the opportunity, what are some of their transitional struggles that you may be worried about if you don't possibly get this job? Um, Well, I I can't think of anybody, you know, honestly, and again, I started thinking about this more so when I read Robert's book, and again, it was very helpful. I I think, I can only think of one guy I know of right now, or maybe two, that didn't, that went into the private sector that I stayed in touch with you know, that I could maybe give a response. One guy just retired. He's going into realty, but he's taking a year off. You know, he financially set himself up where he could take a year off, travel with his wife, who just retired as a major as well. Uh, they've got an RV and a Chevy diesel truck, and they're traveling. Um, so life is good for him. He's already got a plan to go up into Tennessee and, you know, get into the real estate business. You know, and I say that, but you know, the guys I know guys that have gone and done contractor work and it worked out fine for them. You know, most of the guys that I know or stay in touch with are GS employees. One of their biggest struggles, I guess I can see a difference is, is the guy that went straight from uniform to civilian clothes as a GS right away, no break in between. And then the guy that actually took, you know, four or six months break and then came back, you know, they're a different person. They seem to be able to adapt and slide right in, whereas the guy that even though he's out of uniform, it's almost like he never took it all. Sure. You know? It's a, uh, it's a comfort level. They work till 2000 at night, and they're not supposed to be there. Yeah. You know? Right. You know, and I think I know a lot of people, as a matter of fact, I was offered that same opportunity coming off active duty. It wasn't with a GS opportunity, but it was with the contractor, government contractor, where they said, hey, we want to put you in the exact same position you're doing right now. We just want you to come off of active duty. Where It was very comforting, but I, I wanted to run in a different direction. You may find the same thing for yourself. And I mean, coming from your background, 
you're used to it, uh, overcoming and adapting to situations, different cultures, different environments, learning the different language. It, I would imagine at least, be a lot easier for you making that transition. But you tell me, uh, you know, how is that, just given your background and training and SF, it seems like you would adapt a lot quicker. Yeah, I would, I would think so. You know, I mean, uh, not that I, I, I don't, I haven't stayed in touch with a lot of guys I knew from the infantry side. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, with our training, yeah, we can overcome anything, you know, I mean, bottom line, I mean, it's what's expected of us and we expect that of ourselves. I say the old school guys, not to go back to the, what's going on in the Q course or was going on, but, but yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, if you were to, if, if I were to compare myself to one of my, you know, previous guys that was infantry lieutenants with, you know, even a couple of them that didn't make the Q, you know, the, the Q course that tried. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, what, what stresses them? I probably wouldn't even, you know, bat an eye at like, okay, I got something else. I can go find something better than that to be stressed about, you know? Um, so what have you seen just, from most of the people that you've seen walk out the door? What have you seen some of the challenges that they've had to overcome that you're, you watch and go, wow, I never really thought about that. And maybe it's reading my book or maybe it's just now the reality kind of coming in that, all right, I've set a timetable that I'm actually looking at and having to set that runway. What What is it that you're actually looking at and what did you see them do or not do as far as the lessons learned that you can kind of gain from? Uh, well, like, you know, most of the guys, you know, that I reference, it's the GS employees. I, I don't know many from the private sector, but I guess taking taking the time off, you know, taking a break once you do take the uniform off, Definitely one, uh, a couple, the financial, they weren't financially ready. So they had a, you know, a line in the sand where they were just going to take, yeah, they were holding off, ho- hoping for a better job, or maybe even uh, a couple I know as contractors holding out for that higher paying contract. Right. And then you'd run out of money and you don't have that, that option anymore. So they take a job that they didn't necessarily want, which then impacts, you know, happiness. And then some of them, ended up taking jobs they were deploying against contractors and they didn't want that at all. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I pick up a little bit from each and every one of them. Uh, I can honestly say I wish I had stayed in touch with more of them that are in the private sector, you know, out. That's, that's uh, what I was getting ready to touch on, Eric. Yeah, and I met Rudy Rudy and uh, Mike Nadu. You know, you're, there's very few that I know that didn't go right back to contracting or, you know, they, in that aspect, you know, in, in a GS yeah. position. I can't, I can't remember, Eric. They do anymore. Have you uh, got on? I can't remember, Eric. So forgive me, but did you get on LinkedIn? Have you created the LinkedIn profile and stuff? I'm working it. So that's <laughs> one of my downfalls. Uh, I hate computers. Yeah. Uh, and Rudy will tell you, social network. There's a guy named Mark Mark McCallion that. Uh, Mark oh, know him well. Oh yeah. Mark McCallion that constantly every time I see him, he Cousin takes of a mine. picture. I don't have a flip phone instead of my smartphone. Uh, and the only reason I have a smartphone is because I dropped my flip phone in the lake fishing. Uh, <laughs> my son has to continuously show me how to, you know, run my smartphone. I mean, I didn't even use Skype until I had one of my guys overseas show it to me. And, you know, next thing I know, I can see my wife from afar, you know. So, yeah. you know, as a networking and again, you know, uh, saw that in your book, too. And that is one of my shortfalls, if you will, is is staying in touch with people. I mean, staying in touch. I think I did. I think I did fairly well. I didn't do. I don't do much well, but I, I think I did that fairly well prior to getting out. And I was networked with a lot of different people, and, and I, I didn't realize how important that was until after I was already out. And and I, I, I'm speaking to my network has grown very large, 
uh, since I've been out, and um, it's it's a good. I don't want to call it a safety net, but it's a it's a good uh, feeling to know that I can reach out to a lot of different places. If I get tired of, of where I'm working now, or if, God forbid, I lose my job for whatever reason, but uh, you know, it, it that that networking is critical and it's powerful. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, I think a lot of people that. think of it as you have to stay in touch. I mean, and I, and I hear Eric saying the same thing. You have to stay in touch. I I haven't been doing this, but one, you'd be be very surprised at people what you can reach back and ask them for that you had a you know shared experience with and, and whatever historically that you haven't kept up with um, especially former teammates and, and former you know SF guys or whatever but I always look at networking is it's not who who you know it's who they know that you don't know that they have access right. to because that's what opens the doors for you and and I guarantee pop up your profile on LinkedIn just with a special forces officer and you'll have a hundred requests and then your network will start expanding exponentially from there. So people have this false belief that it takes a whole lot of work to, to network and That's in reality not. it doesn't. When you're when you network with the right people and, and you're comfortable in stating your case like like Mike was and again I hate to bring up Mike's story every single show, but that that to me is a perfect example of networking, right? The guy that says Hey, I don't know what I don't know. This is a known unknown to me, so I'm going to take your advice and grow from there. So just being comfortable in ourselves and, and growing and networking from that. Eric, look at what uh, look at. I'll relate it to fishing. Uh, look at what Mark and I have done. You know. Oh, I know. Networking Absolutely. Well, you know, we have grown really fast in, in, in the fishing industry, and we're hanging yeah. out with big time, big time. Oh, I know. That, that can make the, things happen. Have you seen the video with Porter? Uh, oh, yeah. Getting getting lessons, hanging out with uh, absolutely, man. Gary yeah. Klein yeah. and yeah. Erler, and I mean these these guys have networked to the point that we go, you know, to a show with uh, you know Rudy or Mark, and there's pro fishermen hanging out with my son, just you know, while we're all standing around talking, showing them techniques and stuff. I mean, there's people that pay for that, and here's my 13 yeah. year old standing next to three pros, you know, champions. Yeah, so I, I know it's important, you know, not to sound like I'm getting defensive too, but Keep in mind, you know, I, my last deployment, I got back in last August. It's been every year for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, m the old school me would say, no, you're just being lazy. You know, if you had four hours to, to eat and sleep in between work, you should have been networking or doing something. But we've been just. And it's not just it's not just social media either. You know, social media is a big part of it. And I'll agree with you, man. Social media is the bane of my existence. I, Exhausting. I it is. I have yet to, to be able to find a way to keep up, and, and I've done my best to, to try to schedule it. You know, I'll do, a, I'll do like a half hour in the morning, first thing, when everything's quiet. Um, I, and I'll do it in the evening before I shut down and go to bed, and I'll, I'll hit it every so often during the day. But, you know, social media is such a small part of it. You know, it's, it's, it's just staying in touch, you know, whether it's through email, through, through voice, uh, calls, whatever, member groups, things like that. Um, that that's important. Yeah. But you, I mean, again, with the deployments, and we constantly, consistently got the, the, the warnings on compromise. Somebody gets a hold of that, and next thing your, your family's on the line. LinkedIn was on that. It, LinkedIn's compromise. It's a, just an easy, you're making it easy for the enemy. So, it, you know, you remember, you had to talk me into doing this. I was like, you know, I'm not 100% sure they won't deploy me again. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, and again, if it's just me on the line, yeah, whatever, I got it. But, you know, when we're talking, somebody can figure out where my family's at, then... 
I'm not taking the chance. Yeah, you know? the cool so. thing about LinkedIn is it's really more professional site, and, and I'm going to spend my time, Eric, in trying to help you get on LinkedIn and get uh, plugged in because I think it's so important. On you know, there's so much different social media such as Facebook, Twitter, different things like that, Instagram, that could be beneficial. I'll tell you that I found that even Twitter has been very beneficial in making network connections uh, for job opportunities for additional income opportunities and such. And you can certainly use it in that aspect if you know how to tailor it just right. But LinkedIn is one of those things where a lot of headhunters and recruiters actually look at potential applicants that are out there based on your profile, what you've put in it. And if you set up your profile very much like your resume of how you want to present your personal present your personal brand, then that's what they're going to be looking at is who is Eric Lochner? I want to know who this guy is that I'm going to bring in to my organization. What value are they going to bring? Is, is Eric going to bring to the team? And do I want to buy Eric? And so that's what you're selling out there as opposed to the other aspects that might be sec- uh, secure in OPSEC or family or what of that nature. Don't do that, but hone in on your professional aspect I think you'll be very safe and very you fine. Can, uh, you can, you can I definitely do that in a way without without compromising. Anything. Right. I, you don't have to talk about SS. You don't have to talk about anything. You can talk about Eric Lochner. You can talk about leadership. You can talk about uh, uh, character traits. You can talk about uh, past experiences. Um, lots of different things. You can join member groups, uh, whether it's business sector member groups, uh, what on LinkedIn without compromising any of that, any of that special. Oh, I, I, I completely a uh, thousand percent agree with Eric's stance on that because, you know, it, there's a very real new threat in the world and they're very smart and adept at looking and, and finding out and targeting. So, so I don't minimize that at all. And, and my pet peeve is for people that go on there and transfer their entire resume to, you know, LinkedIn or to Facebook or whatever in terms and, you know, and, and all this other stuff, right? Like just doctrinal terms that probably shouldn't be on social media to begin with but you know secondly Green Beret Foundation has a team room so it's a bunch of guys with the same offset concerns and per set concerns that everybody has and you know so a lot of times when I look at LinkedIn I don't even have Green Beret on my profile or anything like that but I'll connect with somebody and next thing you know I'll get endorsed for special operations and this and that and whatever so I think all it says is the kinder group and special activities program manager you know for the government and that's it but I get endorsements all the time based on stuff so you don't have to say a whole lot to have your network start to build and, and work for you well if you think about LinkedIn as an opportunity for a you know, recruiters or those types of individuals that are going to be looking for potential candidates, if there's enough keywords within your LinkedIn profile that they hit Eric Lochner and get an interest in you to reach out to you for additional information, that's what it's about. Have you presented enough within that page to be able to pick up the phone and call Eric and want to get more information? Yeah, I got a cold call off my LinkedIn profile, uh, about managing a um, a bunch of language or interpreters down at Guantanamo Bay, uh, something I hadn't even thought about, something I didn't look look for myself. But a recruiter was scanning through different keyword searches, just like Robert's talking about. And I got a phone call and said, "Hey, would you like to talk to our program manager?" And they set up an interview for the next day. Uh, ultimately, it's something I wasn't interested in doing, but it was a great experience for me to go through the interview process and kind of practice some of those interpersonal skills that I've worked on as an SF guy for years. Uh, but again, it, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't have all those those same things on on my LinkedIn profile, which is no. really just like and a again, 
when I do connect with somebody, another tool that I love is you can unfollow and unconnect somebody as well on LinkedIn. So for somebody that doesn't follow the same guidelines that I'd like to follow or is posting Facebook style stuff to a professional network or whatever, I'll unconnect with them. I mean, and just yeah. scrub my networks to make sure to maintain, you know, again, I don't want to be cliched, but trying to maintain that standard. And I'm not a hundred percent on it right now. You can unconnect. You well, I mean, you don't have to, forever. you don't have to connect with them in the very beginning in the first place. So, I mean, if somebody's reaching out to you and says, Hey, Eric, I want to connect with you. You have that choice in the very beginning, whether or not you feel there's somebody that you want in the know. And so it, even though it may be a, a, profile that's out there and available to the world, you can limit what it is that you're exposing um, to that. At any rate, I, I think it's a it's a great tool that's available that's out there. It's much different than Facebook. It's much different than Twitter. There are other locations and sites that are available. I don't mention within the book, but there are somewhere that you can apply to or that you can set up your profile on. I'm not a huge fan of those that personally that ask you for your rank. I think then you're starting to get more into your military aspects and wanting to know more about that area that maybe I do want to let you know, or maybe I don't, but I'm entering into a private sector or a civilian world. So why does that matter in some degree? So I, I, I get a little somewhat defensive there, and I can certainly understand with you and your position and what you've gone through in protecting, uh, but you limit what it is that you expose and what you want those recruiters to be able to hit on, but they do keyword searches on resumes, and they do keyword searches on LinkedIn as well. So do you want to make yourself available? Like, Do you want to uh, make it to where, um, nope, they just got to hit the honey spot and the, the hot spot only when you want to make it available and uh, you're going to limit that search to only those people you know, then, of course, you're limiting your sphere of influence and your sphere of availability to a much smaller pocket. A word word from our sponsors. LinkedIn, connecting professionals everywhere. Go ahead, I was going to say, I I think there's a uh, uh, LinkedIn for dummies if you really want to look that one up. But... um, well, that you sounds know. right up my lane. Actually, that, that actually, yeah. what I don't actually, know. I think there's it's only not nice to call a guest a dummy. But can... <laughs> well, Scott wrote it, so I think it fits together well. But I, but one thing I wanted to ask you because, and I think this is really important for Mike. He wrote the blog about when he transitioned and what the army offered him before he transitioned. And the ACAP program is absolute garbage, and they don't prepare soldiers to leave. So, and of course, you're going to have to go through it because that's part of you know the out processing, what have you. But what do you expect from that that training, that um, information that you're supposed to get before you leave? As you know, with your experience and uh, as being a lieutenant colonel in, in special forces, especially what you've heard. Well, I don't know when Mike retired, but I've I've heard a lot of guys actually, uh, you know, speak highly of it now. Especially there's a one week period where they focus on resumes and they want you there every day. I, you know, I've definitely been told go to that, make sure you're there. I, you know, I remember, you know, probably about ten years ago, guys definitely were. Against, I would have to argue against that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I retired ahead. in May. And, oh, um, you just if, retired. Okay. Yeah, if you get it, I mean, I, my, the, the, the post that Kat's talking about is something I wrote right after I retired on LinkedIn. Uh, they required me to go to this week-long training. It's, uh, and three days of that, it's the DOD workshop where they're supposed to walk you through having nothing to going to a, a full-blown resume. And it was so juvenile. Um, I mean, it was, it was completely uh, underwhelming. The guy talked about uh, looking in the want ads for jobs, posting. It was just completely well well below i mean if you're a spec four 
who has no plan, who's done a four-year enlistment, um, then that's going to give you something, maybe maybe keep you off you know, mom and dad's couch for a while. But for a retiring professional, it, it did absolutely nothing. Um, and I don't want to plug that article I wrote, but if you do get on LinkedIn, check out my profile, read that article. Um, okay. And it's, it's kind of humorous the way I wrote it because that's, that's the way the whole program was to me. And I, I think after reading Robert's book and, and some of the blog posts on uh, Mentors for Military, uh, you'll see that there's a common theme that, you know, we, we all have to take that responsibility on ourselves. And, and, and I, I think Kat threw you a loaded question to draw the rest of us into it. You know, it's kind of like bait in the, in the fish pond. But, um, you know, I, you've, you've got you've to do your own analysis. You've got you to gotta prepare. And I, I want it since, since I'm talking, I'm going to harp on this. I've got it written down that you've mentioned finances four times. Uh, that's the number one thing I tell guys that they have to plan for is finances. Robert's got a great blog post about building a nest egg, but something that they, they don't tell you at retirement services and they don't tell you until about the day you're signing out is you may not get a paycheck for 60 days. They're going to withhold your last month's pay. So if you get if you get a, a mid-month pay, they're going to not pay you at mid-month. And then they're not going to pay you at end of month for the last month that you're actually working on active duty. And then the Army does an analysis of your entire career to see if anywhere you owe them money. And it can take up to another 30 days to get your final month's pay and to start your retirement pay. So you really have to be prepared to go about, you know, 45 to 60 days with, with zero, just working out of savings. And, and so I, I've seen it catch a lot of particularly junior guys um, in a bad way because they, they had no nest egg. So I, I'm glad to see that you've been financially preparing and, um, and, and building that nest egg. I'm, I'm glad you told me that because that's the first I've heard of that. The I was at the VA part, you know, the VA disability, right? Whatever uh, that you you know, six months to a year. But as far as your paycheck, your retirement, I've even had one guy tell me it's it's right away. There's no break. So um, that's good to know. Uh, all of them have said though, you know, definitely make sure you have six months. You know, whatever you make, live off of in a month. Make sure you have at least six months saved up. Uh, so, so we're working on that. Um, I was right away, but I was med boarded as well. So that, that I, had something to do with it. I had, yeah. I had all that VA stuff knocked out ahead of time. And mine was the day I was out, I was, I was already all locked in. It's funny you mentioned that cause that's something else I've been looking at. So Mark Torito, Doc yep. Torito from third yep. group, he's already found two or three things that I could be med boarded for. So that's now part of, on top of the transition is do I look at just taking care of VA with retirement or do I let yes. them actually med board me? I've asked multiple people, which one's better retirement and you get disability or medically retired, you know, and really you'll get them both have... because you're over 20. You're still yeah. going to get a pension because you're over 20. If which the army med boards you and, and they, and they rate you for the VA, you'll get VA disability as well. Yeah. It is depends there... on what percentage it is, whether or not it's just a percentage of your pay or if it's all your retirement pay. So it, there's a big difference there too. Like, you know, we're probably all on this call, 20, 30% disabled if we did the VA correctly. Um, or, yeah. So, or it could be <laughs> more. So, you know, it, it, uh, it all depends upon how your records were, how you sat yeah. down and did it. And, and then understand that that's how much taxable income, you know, you're so you've got to be rated at over 50% to get concurrent receipt of retirement and disability pay. Anything under fifty percent, they're gonna they're gonna take that out of your retirement pension, 
and you're going to get a check from the VA that's tax-free. So there's a big difference there that a lot of people do not know about, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Mike, and maybe this is a great opportunity to talk about this in a podcast. When you're, say, 30% disabled, which is great because you reach a certain bracket to where you can apply for jobs that help you because you have to be at least 30% disabled in order to apply for certain positions in the DOD level, um, that's great for that area, but what most people don't understand is they take 30% of your retirement pay and basically make that non-taxable, and then they give you the rest of the 70% that is taxable. So it's not like it's two separate checks. It's not 30% disability, and it's not truly even 30% of your pay, by the way, which is another uh, misunderstanding that a lot of people have. It's going to be some factor that's probably going to be more like about 12%, even though you're 30% disabled, and you get that uh, non-taxable, and then you get the rest of your pay of your retirement pay that is taxable. So instead of getting what I'm saying, a VA check for 30% disability and a retirement check for 100% of your retirement, it's not that way. That's what Mike's talking about. Not until you hit 50%. Not until you hit 50%. That's That's the difference. So Eric, it is very important that you go through that process before you separate so that you can understand and they can evaluate and help you through that as to what the possibility of your, your disability factor will be. And often the VA will, will rate you higher than the Army will yeah, as will. you retire. So the Army's going to say you're at this rate. The VA is going to look at the same paperwork and they say, no, you're, you're, you're this rate. That's what we're going to pay you because it's two different organizations with two different evaluation standards. So some, some, some words of caution. And, and I'm, I'm all for the med board you know, process. I, 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 had a, I had a pleasant experience with it. It was, it was long. It took a, just over a year uh, for mine to go through. But a word of caution. And that is make damn sure that's what you want to do when you pull that trigger. Because once that bullet's out of the chamber, it's out. You ain't taking it back. And you can, you know, unless you know somebody and can influence something, you know, you're on the slate for med board, you're, you're, going, you're on your way out. Um, but, yeah, and that's the one I've gotten. That, that is yeah. the one piece I did get is if you do a med board, and I, I'm talking after 20. I've got 20 yep. years. What's yep. the difference? The one answer I did get was if, you, if you're doing retirement on your timeline over 20, it's your timeline. If you pull yep. the trigger on the med board, it's no longer your time. It's right. Your time. That's right. It's the army will, you know, you're out. Yep. Now, now, a benefit to it, a huge benefit is is FVA process, and you get all of that knocked out before you're out. So, you know, you, like some of these guys, like my son, waited a year and a half to get his claims before they even thought about contacting him and, and, and going through that process so he could get paid. But you know, uh, mine. It was it was the day the day I was out. Boom! I was everything was already finished. VA was had already given me my uh, my rating, and it it was an easy day. Um, I don't know. It, that's one of the pros to it. But uh, and I, you know, I did the same thing, Rudy. Kind of yeah. as I retired, I didn't go through a med board. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think that the way they're doing it now, the major installations, I'm sure uh, you're at Fort Bragg. Is that right still, Fort Bragg? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm sure they're still doing doing the same program where they're trying to get guys their, their VA disability benefits as they retire. So you'll you'll do everything with the, the VA before you actually retire. And then on your the day you sign out, you'll, you'll drop off a copy of your DD-214. And the day your terminal leave ends, the VA will file it. All your all your medical stuff will have been done. Uh, all your evaluations with contractors or the VA hospital will have been 
and done before you retire. And then it's just a matter of paperwork bureaucracy. And for me, it took about 60 days from the, the time I actually got out of the military. And a lot of times it has, it has a 30 days for benefits to start. A lot of times it has to do with how far, you, honestly, you are away from the regional office. So in other words, if you're in Columbus, Georgia, uh, at Fort Benning, it's going to take you longer than if you lived in Atlanta or if you even drove it up to Atlanta and filed it off at the Atlanta VA office. It's totally different uh, in terms of timeline. So um, I'm, I'm assuming that Bragg is probably close to a regional center. Uh, you can certainly check that out or ask your local VA people there. But it's a huge, huge uh, point that we have never touched on in a podcast, or I never really even touched on within the book. But it's so critical. Back in the day, I used to have VA people that would tell me it's really important that you go on sick call because a good veteran does, but yet a good soldier doesn't. And what they were trying to state is that it's important that you document that information within your medical records, whereas back in those days, nobody ever wanted to do that because it could be the kiss of death, especially if you got a P3 profile. So it's it's really important that you take care of Eric as you start separating. Ask those right questions. They have the VA people, which I think was one of the best people I ran into within the tra- uh, total assistance program or transition assistance program uh, process was the VA uh, where they sat down with me and told me about all the opportunities, the paperwork I had to fill out, all those types of things. It's a critical step, Eric. It, there's, there's no early time to do that. Do that now, especially if you're talking about next March. Yeah, luckily, uh, there's several um, guys that have retired working in the uh, IG shop. They're helping me out with that. One of them, actually, he just retired and just recently found out what he was getting for disability and now he's looking at it like no kidding fully retiring right uh it was that good you know which brings me to another point too a neighbor down the road of mine you know found out he was getting 100 percent, and then when he realized the benefit of that you know which he earned absolutely now you know where he was working on getting another job where he's no longer looking for a job because yeah. financially he doesn't have to have a job you know um, i you know i i He's he's probably better off financially than I am, but you know I'm getting 100. And yes, it's it's very it's a very welcoming feeling every month to know that that money's coming in. Um, but you know, I, and I retired as a CW4, but it's not that much. You know, it's it, it, it helps quite a bit. Yeah, I, I'm not going to argue but against that. But I guess my point would be is I think a lot of guys. I, I'll, I'll just say I'll speak for myself. If I knew what I was getting in the retiring process, it would probably impact when I retire. Sure. I mean, if I knew Absolutely. I was getting 100%, I might be retired next March, hands down, no problem. Right. Which well, Eric, I'll, tell you, I'll talk to you, I'll talk to you, uh, I'll talk to you one-on-one, man. We could talk offline uh, when I get down to Ufala with you. Yeah, um, we were doing that last time at Ufala too, remember? Yeah, yeah I'll give you some, uh, I, I'll get some insights on that, man, because uh, it's a tricky road, and, and there's certain, it's, I don't want to say politics, but you got to, you got to play your cards right too, you know, and, um, and you know my take on things. I'm not going to, and there's, I see too many people uh, BSing their way through that process, trying to get, you know, it benefits for something that wasn't wrong with them. I've yeah. ran across people, and when you start acapping, you're going to see tons of people like that, unfortunately. But uh, there, there's a way to legitimately do it, and and to make sure that your, you know, your T's are crossed and your eyes are dotted uh, going into that process. Yeah, how I does that, how does that affect you um, getting a a DOD job afterwards, though? It doesn't, it doesn't because you. Can, there's two types of 100% uh, uh, disabilities. There's there's 100% where you're non-employable, and there's 100% where you're employable. And Which that's, I'm just learning about. Yeah, so you want to be 100% employable because you want to you want to 
be able to get a job if you want to and then not you know be illegal about it or have someone come in behind you down the road and and um and nail you for something for fraud or anything like that i think it's worth noting too that, that you're never going to get rich off the u.s government no, no, um, no. so so your 100 percent disability eric isn't the 100 percent that you're making right now if you draw 100 percent, it would be exactly the same that rudy draws that i I would draw that that Robert draw anything, and it's about forty grand a year. So, because I know guys who go through the med board process that don't retire, they get that and they struggle because that's all they got. Uh, so, it's, I mean, just keep that in mind. It's it, it it's it is nice to have a check coming in every month. It is a little bit of additional security while you're while you're bridging to your next career move, right? Um, but it's you're you're not gonna you're not gonna live well high on the hog on on government VA disability. Yeah, I guess for me, you know, maybe it may, it's the, it's the, and I'll use this, even though my wife would kill me, but you know, it, it's the, um, the difference between the amount that I'm getting may determine how hard I'm going to pursue a GS 13, as opposed to right. maybe I just work my passion at Bass Pro Shop in the fishing section. It's going to give you options, right? Right. Yeah. right. So I don't, you it'll, know, whereas, definitely, definitely give you options, man. Yeah, and there's a beautiful Bass Pro Shops here in Colorado Springs. It's just at the base of Pikes <laughs> Peak. <if you> guys <laughs> to I'm trying to get them to build one in Fayetteville. They won't do that, but I yeah. think that's the only way the wife would agree to it. But, but. you know, you bring up a good point here because, I mean, even if you think about somebody who, uh, whether they spent 20 years in or they spent 10 years in or something, if they end up getting VA disability or they have money that's set aside, it gives them those different options that allows them to determine whether they want to continue climbing a ladder, going out there and, you know, really pushing the envelope, or if it's something that maybe, you know what, I just spent 20 years on active duty or 10 years doing something and, you know, that's unique and different than the average person out here. Um, so I, I don't mind taking something that applies more to my purpose or passion. And in your case, that happens to be fishing. In somebody else's case, it may be something entirely different. But it gives you that opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise have. So take advantage of it. Look at it and, and at least apply for it to see if it's uh, available to you. I, yeah, and there's, I'll, I'll tell you, too, and I'll just say combat arms. You know, the yes. education. Guys don't know. And, and somebody mentioned earlier, I'm not taking a profile. I, I My first profile really was a year ago, maybe two years ago. This last deployment, I had to deploy with two waivers for permanent profiles. You know, now they, they're just, age is catching up with. But guys don't know the benefits, which they've earned. You know, again, I'm not, not, not handout, but a guy that's been uh, running and gunning 11 and 18 series for 20, 20, 30 years. I mean, his knees, his ankles, his shoulders, his back. Yes. I mean, he's, he's made some serious sacrifices. They're going to catch up with him. But because he's avoided profiles, because we know what it's like, especially in combat arms, if you got a profile, kiss of death. Your, yeah, the 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 the, uh, the environment, the culture there, you know, it's 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 not good. Uh, and then also one thing I'm suffering from, I'm sure some of you other guys did too, is the team room medicine. So I got stuff <laughs> taken care of that are not in the records, and I just started, you know, again with the retirees I'm working with who are constantly beating me in the head to go to sit call, which I still haven't done. I refuse to walk in there with somebody that shouldn't be standing in line or, or you know, there. And then on top of that, you know, here recently, there's, I, I'm not going to spread gossip or rumor, but there's all obviously problems at the clinic that we're supposed to go to. So, you know, you're talking four to four, six, eight weeks to meet your provider. And all I'm trying to do is get stuff document, documented because I just recently found out anything before 2004. 
they don't have any record of because they didn't have this database. Well, they, so, they've got them. They've got them. Your paper records are still at the hospital. You're gonna have to request them and get paper copies of them. But all the new all the new records are are in a, a computer system. You're right. Um, but just let me tell you what I did. I went in every week, once a week for about two months, and I sat down with one of our docs. And I'm sure you know you've got a, a doc on the staff there that can probably help you do this as well. Um, and we just talked about two issues. And the issues have to be you know kind of current in your record and also chronic. So they've been bothering you for a long time. And he can cover a lot of that in your general write-up. And, and when you go to file for your disability with the VA, uh, I use the DAV, but OASIS is another group. Yeah, OASIS ground, and, and they will go through your records with you and help you do the paperwork. Um, all that stuff up front at the end of your records will, will, will fill the documentation. And then you'll, it'll get into the claim and you'll actually sit down with a VA provider who's going to evaluate every one of those things on your claim. Every and, little bitty. I mean, well, they'll, they'll just, not just your claim, they'll actually go through your medical record and read every sick call that you went on and nitpick. Well, the, the filers, Oasis yeah. will go through your medical records all the way back, you know, when you were an infantryman in the National Guard, if, if they're yep. if they're documented that far back. But, you know, and that'll, that'll make it into the claim. And then the the claim will get you into the into the physical with the VA, and then they'll take the little rulers out and they'll measure you bending over and they'll measure your shoulder mobility and and that's what actually gets you a disability is lack of mobility. So you know you've got a you've got a chronic. Le- legitimately have chronic mobility issues to get any disability rating. So you can't really fake that, um, or you shouldn't fake it. I'm sure guys yeah, do, yeah. Um, and it's got to be documented. You're right. Uh, but I think Eric's thing, running. In, I think Eric's running the same problem I did, and and that was when I. When I decided to go after the med board, um, it, or actually the doctor offered it to me, and uh, and I thought about it for a couple of days, and then and then made that decision. But my problem was I had to go back and rebuild my medical file because it's like Eric said, I never went on sick call, I never did anything. My my med records is almost non-existent, and um, and I had broken bones and freaking scars and everything else. But so the trick to that, or not not trick, but the, the process to that can be long. And you want to make sure that that you do it right, and and you need to start from day one when you came in the military, build it, you know, and, and say, hey, doc, you know, when I was a, a PFC, you know, before before I went to the O course, you know, I, I sprained my ankle, and it's it's been giving me problems ever since. Whatever the case, you know, that's probably a bad example, but whatever the case, you got to go back and get that get that added and, and annotated in there from a, a physician or a doctor that's while you're rebuilding your packet. And Just then, a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kat. Oh, just a quick, um, I, I know we're trying to hurry this, but just a quick tip. If you, you can go on to the VA website and actually go through where the disabilities are, and they'll, they have on there each category for your disabilities that you can request, and okay. on, there, on there you can actually look up the questionnaire or the physical exam that the VA is going to give you. And one thing that's really important, and I would suggest doing it, whatever your ailments are, Print out those, uh, they're called the DBQs, and uh, print those out and take those to your physician now, and if you actually have your current physician fill that out and you put it in your record or your e-benefit site, then that just, it shows that you're having, you have not only the VA's opinion, but your actual doctor's opinion, and they're looking at the exact same sheet. So it's a very beneficial tool, and it's not... I wouldn't say it's like cheating the system because it's available to everybody, but it really does open your eyes to, oh, this is how you word this, or this is what this ailment means when I do this. So um, 
a lot of good information on there. So I would definitely look into it. Okay, thank you. Just, ex just expand. That. That's DBQ is the Disabilities Benefits Questionnaire, right. and you're going to have to fill that out before you go into your VA physical anyway. And on that, for every one of the items that you've claimed, you're going to have to give a description, just a narrative of when it started bothering you, why it started bothering you, how long, and, and what caused it. And to, to circle back to something you said earlier, Eric, tie it to everything you did as an infantryman and as a Green Beret. I mean, if every one of the items on mine for, you know, you talk about bad knees, ankles, back, neck, everything is has to do with carrying a rucksack and SFAS, SUT, 25 years on an ODA. Uh, you know, I'm a free fall guy. So I've had multiple bad landings at night. And, and you've got to be detailed in that so that the, the guy that's a bureaucrat who's reading it understands that, oh, this isn't this isn't a guy who just had kind of a, a, a I'm not going to say an easy job because there really are no easy jobs, but but he didn't have as a physical job as what we did. He, he can he can see exactly what you did in your career that has caused these problems or has made them worse. And, you know, swallow your pride a little bit. I'm almost 50 and I retired, like I said, in May. And since I've had knee surgery, I've had a couple other things go wrong. I thought I was in the best shape of my career about 12 months ago, about 12 months ago. I turned my last PT test well over 300 on the extended scale, 12 and a half minutes on the two miles. And, um, and it's just kind of been a slow fizzle. You know, since then, and um, potentially since a, a pretty, pretty a, a knee surgery that's that's slowed me down quite a bit. Um, you're not going to recover as fast as you did when you're on, you know, on a team getting getting help from from the medic. And just so, a, another point: if you if you do take those DBQs and you go through it yourself, and you also take, uh, I would definitely look at how your injury is compensated by percentage. So. Look at the DBQ, look at how it's compensated if you're 50% for this ailment because you can only bend so far or you have numbness down this way or what have you. And then if the VA comes back to you and says, okay, we're just going to give you 30% for this, but you clearly know that you have such and such that qualifies you for 50%, don't allow them to do that to you. You peel it. Yeah, it might take some time, but you deserve what the Army has broken. So don't, don't be patient. Don't appeal. Don't appeal, Cat. Don't even use the word appeal. Why? Why is that? Because appeals take five years. So what? What That's you want? Here. So so what? Well, you I didn't want know to that. Do, what you want? To, I hope you haven't already appealed something. No. What, no. what you want to do is you want to go in and say, well, I, I think I think my condition is worse than what it was when it was initially evalu initially evaluated. You can there's, do that. There's key. You there's can. key. There's key okay. phrases. There's key you can, terminology you have to use, and it's the politics of the whole thing. Mike touched on a couple of them. I touched on a couple of them. The keywords are chronic, loss of mobility. Uh, those are two of the most important ones. And and when you go through when you go through the VA site, you look at those descriptions, and you look at the based on the percentage ratings, they have different descriptions for the same ailment. You know, a description for ten percent is different than thirty percent, than it is for fifty, than it is for hundred. Right. You need to you know kind of match your your verbiage while you're you're describing ailments to the doctor for the assessment. To you know, to what's legit and what's going on, but that'll that'll gauge where you're at and what that rating is. So when the when the I don't want to say lawyer, but when the when the staff whacker is reading your paperwork, you know he's not a doctor. A board decides. The regional to, office, yeah. Yeah, a board decides your your thing, but that verbiage has to match with their definitions. Right. And, and, and when you get your rating back from the VA, it will say the VA rated you at 10%. And I'll just tell you, all of mine are a bunch of 10%, right? Because yep. 
That's that's all the mobility I've lost at various different joints. But the VA rated you at 10% for this this uh, particular instance. It did not rate you at 30% because it was not X, 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 X. And it'll use all that verbiage that, that Rudy is talking about. They're very detailed in it. So if a situation comes up where they give you a 0%, which is key, I mean 0%. That's a, that's a percentage. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's good. Um, and, and, and you think you've got some loss of mobility, you can ask for a doctor to reevaluate that specific joint or that specific claim. And, um, and he'll, re, he'll go in, I mean, they measure you, they do a bunch of tests. They have me do so single leg squats two weeks after you increase, surgery. right? So you would, so accept the, so, so you're kind of challenging it. And then, ex, and then request an increase to that ailment. Is what you're saying? Don't yeah, you're not you're not appealing their decision because okay. they rated you service connected disability. Right. Okay. You're not appealing it. All you all you want is to say that hey, I think I've got less mobility than you think I have based on that physical, and I would like another doctor to reevaluate. I mean, we probably okay. should do a whole another podcast just on this OV. Yeah, because I, 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 I got one point. I got one point that's important, and 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 then I'll be quiet. <laughs> the, the second point next to the verbiage. That was that's absolutely most critical, Eric. And, and it took me a long time to realize this, brother. Nobody, and I mean nobody, gives two craps about Eric Lochner and Eric Lochner's family, except Eric Lochner. Okay, I don't yeah, care. Roger. I don't care who it is, man. And 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 Mike Mike had mentioned it. You know, you gotta you gotta look inward, and it's a hard pill to swallow, man. And especially if you're going through that med process and the, and the profiles and, and all that call it for what it is man because at the end of the day nobody's looking out for you except you and you know it there's a time man everybody everybody faces it there's a time when it's time to take a knee i just want to put a disclaimer we do care about you (laughs) so you can come back to us no i'm just kidding i'm I'm glad you brought that up rudy and that kind of swings back to something robert asked me earlier about challenges and i i you know i i think about when i'm at work but when i leave work i leave i try to leave work there but currently the job i'm in it's in the, uh, the IG section for USOP, but I work in the sensitive activities division. Yep. There's two of us. That's me and one other guy. So forcing myself to take time away to take care of myself for retirement, that means I'm putting the workload on yep. my partner. He's a retired, you know, uh, SF, 18 Zulu, team charge, and did, you know, did the same thing. He's been on board for about two years now as a GS. Uh, he just... So the fellow I replaced left around April, May time frame. And by the time I was school trained and able to actually uh, help the team of two of us, that is, uh, my partner had been doing the job for a year by himself, single-handed, because nobody else can do it because of the classification. So like I said, sensitive activities. So now when I'm gone, the other day was the first time I actually went to Clark to try to start this paperwork for my retirement. Instead of it being a one-hour trip, it was a five-hour trip because it had been so long since I've been there. Even just somebody explained to me the administrative part of it. Yeah, everybody's, you know, I get the, you know, nobody's going to take care of you and your family but you. But at the same time, having that same team OVA concept, you know, I, I don't want to put it all on my partner. Hey, you gotta, you're just going to have to carry the water because I've got to go take care of retirement. So that's another challenge because – they don't make extra 05 or, or senior NCO positions where I can just hang out and retire unless you're in the warrior transition battalion. But, you know, we, we all know what it takes to, to get there. And yeah. uh, I'm not there. Um, so balancing the workload, which, I mean, you can look at the TV at any given moment and see how busy we are, busier we are. 
um, the workload doesn't decrease while we're retiring. So somebody, it just sucks to have to put that on one of our partners to carry the load for two men because one of us is trying to retire. Yeah, and that's one of the challenges that you're going to have over this next year or whenever you make that decision that that's the date and you're going to start working for for that date, whether it's next March, next April, whenever that date may be that you end up deciding. But you, I think, you know, Rudy brings up a very good point. At some point, you've got to take time out of your busy schedule to take care of Eric for the future because there is a future after the Army. And if you haven't prepared for it well, then you're going to rush into it. Because I'll be honest with you, I learned some things about the VA aspect, even in this conversation, that I wasn't aware of. And so it's it's one of those things where we're constantly learning about all the nuances of all these things. And unless you have that opportunity where people can sit around like we're doing here and have this kind of conversation, you're likely not to run into that. And you'll never hear about it. You put in all your time, as many people do, until that moment to where they're ready to separate. They think they have all the answers. They walk out the door, and then they're hit with the reality. So take the time for you, Eric, as you've got the time. It, it, I get it. You might be stealing some time from him, but I'm sure he understands as well because he's been in your shoes as well at yeah, some that point. Guilt is, we, we do that to ourselves, and it, it's nonsense because he knows you're retiring. He has retired, and he's a soft guy as well with a 20-year career. So as long as I think, I would argue, as long as you're communicating to him and not taking advantage of the situation, which it doesn't sound like anyone would accuse you of at right. all, just as long as there's communication occurring with his background and your background, it's no secret that you're going to retire at some point. So, you know, don't, I wouldn't let that bother you at all. And I say that as a guy who hasn't retired. So I left every job I've left, you know, working up to the last minute before I, you know, boarded a flight to go somewhere else and do something. So I understand that guilt because it hits me the same way, but just communicate and it's, it's bigger in your head than it is in reality. And think about those guys who've had, you know, not had the opportunity to pick a date to actually drop the papers towards and actually build that, um, timeline where instead they get medically discharged they get 30 days less or whatever and boom they've got to go then they don't have that luxury of trying to figure out what is the right way i should do this what kind of paperwork should i fill out how do i go about doing these steps they're forced into it in a 30-day timeline no one ever talks to them and they're out the door take that timeline that you've got and that's where i talk about a lot within the book too i think you probably read eric where think about how long it is that you really need don't set a date just yet. Try to figure out what it is that you want to accomplish and then set that date so that you have enough runway to get you there so that you are successful once you go on the other side, as opposed to establishing a date and try to build backwards. And, and that, that may mean instead of the 12 months you needed, you try to do it in six months and it's not going to be as successful in that timeline. I mean, as as a guy that you we're are, we're great at giving advice and leading, but we're horrible at taking advice, right? Yeah. So think of the advice today. That, that go back to your days as a team leader, right? An 18 alpha on an ODA, and your junior Charlie is thinking about getting out, or your team sergeant is going to retire. And think to that advice that you would give him, that we would freely give that person, because we, we've all been in some similar position, right? But that we we give that Don't advice, we know that advice, we believe in it. And yet we refuse to do it for ourselves out of some guilt or pride. So That's a great point because we talked about this a lot in the previous podcast, Eric, is that we we do such a good job in giving advice to other people. But when it comes to time, uh, the time to make our own transition, we never plan properly. We never think about ourselves. We're so concerned about, again, other people, their time. You're already thinking about your partner and the whole bit. You've got to think about you. 
And I think Rudy said it well. No one think, takes care of you but you. Yeah, my point. And your family. And your family, more importantly. Yeah. Like, that's the big one. That was the first thing you came right off. You know, you made all these career moves to stay in Fayetteville and give them the solidarity of a good education and continuity of life and everything else. So, you know, that's been your focus and that should be your focus and keep that same focus with the, the focus, you know, lens being on retirement instead of schools. Anyway, that's my two cents. Well, Eric, I, I really Thank appreciate you. Appreciate yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show and taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, so on behalf of Kat and Mike, Jack, and Scott, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you again for the invitation and all the advice. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you.